Welcome to Southern Sisters Radio on Faith Talk Atlanta, the show for Southern women and the men who adore them. Join us as we celebrate life from a Southern point of view. Here's your host, author, founder of Southern Sisters Home and true Southern sister, Jenny McCormick Earhart. Hello and welcome to the Southern Sisters Radio program. Yes, indeed, the show for Southern women and the men who adore us. I always like to say we're talking about ourselves, ladies, and we're talking about you men because we know that you adore us. Yes. Yes, Marquis, one of my favorite Southern gentlemen. (laughs) What a great time it is to be in the studio today talking about life in the South. There is so much to discuss. My goodness gracious, where, where do I start to count the ways that I love life in the South? Although I will say... Towards the end of the summer, which is pretty much where we are right now. You know, it's those dog days. It's those last few sort of waning, hot, hot, hot days of summertime. I start to become slightly, shall we say, ungrateful. Ungrateful. How? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of the heat. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may recall that we discussed once before that I had traced my genealogy and discovered that I've got a, a tremendous amount of Swedish in me. Mm-hmm. And I think by, by nature, you know, um, I'm just maybe not suited for the heat. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's the excuse you want to give. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite thing about August, you know what my favorite thing about August What's is? That? Air conditioning. Oh. Yeah. Well, that should be June, July, August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's hot. April, and May. <laughs> well, it kind of it kind of rolls all into September, too. There's going to be a wedding in my family next month. We're very excited. My second daughter, Kelly, is getting married to the man of her dreams. Aww. His name is Roman, and he is just adorable. And Ronan? Getting, Roman. Oh, Roman. Roman. Ooh. Yes, he's wonderful. And um, they're getting married in September. But you know, it's that middle of September time when mm-hmm. you're not really, you can't be completely sure what the weather's going to be like. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it might rain. It could rain. It might snow. Always rain. I have no uh, backup snow plan okay, for this wedding. Well. That, that, it better not happen. No, but it could be, you know, it could be 92 degrees or mm-hmm. it could be 78 degrees. Quite frankly, September's a little iffy. Are you having so. it outdoors? Yeah, the ceremony is outdoors. Yes, they're getting married. Why do people do that? I don't, you know, Just have it you in know the church. Why have to do... hold everything in the church. I know. In the fellowship hall, you have the reception. They do it to give their mothers panic attacks, Yes, I think is what it is. I can see it written all over your face right now. Yeah. You're thinking about it in Europe. You're like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> yeah, something you know, under a pecan tree. Anything could happen. I mean, yeah. there could be a squirrel up there throwing you know, acorns at us. <laughs> well, pecans. <laughs> I guess if it's a pecan tree. Oh. No, but I'm, I'm optimistic, and I know, you know, for me and my bones, I know that autumn is just around the corner. And I don't know if a lot of you feel this way, but um, as much as I do honestly I enjoy the summertime however the autumn is my favorite time of year it's when those temperatures start to cool off a little bit I love autumn food Mm -hmm. you know I love the smell of burning leaves I love the piles of pumpkins at the fruit and vegetable stands you know what I'm saying I love the scarecrows and I love Halloween and so to me as I get towards the end of the summer summer I'm just thinking about what's next You know, I guess it's human nature. We always want, you know, what's coming up next. As soon as the leaves start changing. (laughs) Well, I wanted to give you a little update on my my clean diet. Oh, yes. Well, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week and how my husband and I are kind of cleaning up our diet just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I I use the word diet very loosely because this is not some sort of a special diet that we're on. But we we're eliminating or at least I am for the (laughs) I'm doing a little better at eliminating the sugar than he is. But um, I've eliminated most sugar and a lot of breads from my diet. I'm giving it a try to see how I feel. Mm hmm. And I do feel great. Um, I'm happy to report, Marquis, that the anger is gone. I could tell. <laughs> I'll tell you this. When she came in this morning, she just had, she looked more peppy than she was last week. Did I? Yes. Did I? You know what? Last week, I was in some serious mourning. Mm-hmm. M- mourning. Like I'm mourning the loss of sugar because oh. I'm a sweet tea girl. You know, a clean diet isn't, isn't hard for Southern girls, I think. Yeah. 
we like dirty diets. <laughs> and that's not as bad as it sounds. You know what I'm saying? We like bread and sugar and all of the things that kind of, you know, go into that kind of Everything diet. that makes everything good. Everything that makes everything good. Like peach cobbler. There you got it. Yep. You got bread and you got sugar. And well, you got won't you everything. use an alternative sugar? I'm doing that. I've been playing around with some Truvia and having a good time with that. But I'm feeling a lot better. I mm-hmm. really am. I will say that. I've got a lot more energy. I'm sleeping better, believe it or not. So there's probably going to be some nutritionist out there that tells me that, you know, getting rid of the sugar in my diet is actually improving my sleep. Quick habits. question. Is this just like crystalline sugar or like uh, can you replace it with honey and you, have natural sugars? Well, or? you can have some natural. You know, they say you don't need to eliminate all of everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You can still have some of that. So right now I've got most of the sugar. I'm not even doing honey right now. I'm doing like some of the Truvia, just kind of sweetening things that way. And also kind of trying to enjoy things less sweet. Okay. That's a big step for me. Huge stuff. Yeah, I've seen your cookbooks, yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you, but you know what? Here's the here's the good news. I'm still able to enjoy many of my favorite Southern um, food items, shall we say. I've been pan-searing um, a lot of fresh fish and, and even pork. I did a pork tenderloin last mm. week and beef. Oh, we pan-seared some, some beef tenderloins last week. They were amazing. And I'm slow roasting a lot of vegetables. You know what Ooh, I'm saying? Yeah, I love it. So just about any great Southern vegetable folk that's out there, um, you can you can slow roast it. And slow roasting it sort of just deepens the flavor. You yes. know, a lot of times if you roast it long enough, it kind of caramelizes and naturally sweetens it. You know, yep. take case in point, a raw onion versus a cooked caramelized onion. You know, just as sweet as can be, right? And I have loved doing that. In fact, what I did this week was I... Um, I got a whole bunch of fresh peppers, um, not just from my garden. I, I don't have any peppers in my garden, but I got friends that do. And I picked some up at the farmer's market. And I had red and green and yellow peppers. And I, I sliced them up, right? I mm-hmm. seeded them and sliced them up. And I just covered the entire baking tray with these uh, sliced peppers. I also threw about two chopped onions in there. And I roasted them in the oven. Uh, a little olive oil. Don't forget the olive oil. A little salt and pepper. Roasted them until they just kind of... Uh, you know, just caramelized and reduced down, and they were just just so amazingly intensely flavored. And what I did was I just stored that in the refrigerator, and I would use those those um, roasted peppers and onions. I would incorporate them into my dishes all week long. I'm telling you, you take a scoop of that stuff and put it on your burger, mm-hmm. it's to die for. Now, I want to make a confession real quick. Okay. My wife got me a, a, one of those vacuum sealers, Yeah. and I do that a lot. I will roast something like garlic, you know, bulbs or yeah. uh, onions, and I'll just vacuum seal them up and throw them in the freezer. Really? Yes. What a great way to preserve, especially a lot of things that are in season now, you know, that, that either become more expensive in the winter mm-hmm. or... Good for you, Mark. Radio audience, I want you to know one thing. Jimmy McCormick <laughs> did not know that I was a cook and a food fanatic <laughs> when we first started this show. Fate put us together, yes. right? Fate put us together. Well, you know, in addition to the uh, the healthy, clean diet, mm-hmm. I want to talk about something that's maybe not so healthy, but it does. You know, it doesn't have to not be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, do you know what today is, Marky? Uh, no. Oh, it's an important day oh, in my life. I hope so. It's National Burger Day. Oh, that is an important day in my life, too. Hello. <laughs> you know, some of the happiest moments in my life are associated with eating burgers. Yeah. I've been eating burgers since I was a little girl. Like I'm thinking, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, the interesting thing about it is that um, for those of us that love burgers, I mean, I could eat one every day, probably. I can't, but I, w- I would if I could, right? You know, I was learning this week about some fun ways to kind of dress up our burgers. Now, we've done some things, I've done some things to my burgers over the years just to keep them more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. But um, folks, I'm going to give you some ideas in honor of National Burger Day, which is today. Um, let's talk about some ways that we can kind of shake up our burgers a little bit, make them a little bit different. Now, in my case right now, because I'm trying to be a good girl, right? With a little Mm -hmm. bit of clean eating, cutting out some of the carbs in my diet, um, I would probably do the burger without the bun. 
which is not as bad as it sounds, especially when you top it with some of these amazing things. How about an Italian burger? Mm. Oh, yes. A nice thick slice of mozzarella cheese, a little scoop of marinara sauce, and how about some grilled mushrooms? Ah, with no bread. That's Hello. I mean, you don't even need the bread with something like this, right? How about a Mexican burger? Now, I did this actually recently. A slice of Monterey Jack cheese, right? A little scoop of salsa and some jalapenos. Mm. You can do the pickled or the fresh. Fresh if you can handle it. I'm just hungry right now. Right? Yes. I didn't have any breakfast, Marquis. I'm Uh-oh. starving right now. <laughs> How about this? A little Swiss cheese barbecue sauce, a slice of bacon, and some of those little French fried onions. Oh. Doesn't that sound good? You just stop it. I know, right? We got we to gotta eat after this. Yes. <laughs> we got to start bringing some food in. Now, for those of you that like to be a little classy, okay, how about a little herbed goat cheese? Now, are you, are you a goat cheese fan? Yeah, I love goat Okay, yeah. I do too. Um, a little herbed goat cheese, some roasted red peppers, like the kind I've been making mm-hmm. in my oven this week, and a little, little dab of horseradish. That sounds delicious. Got a little kick there, right? Yeah. How about a little sliced avocado or even a scoop of guacamole and some red onion? You know, I love to pickle red onions. I'll slice them real thin, mix them with a little bit of vinegar and oil, and let them sit in my refrigerator overnight. Put a little scoop of those on top of a burger. Hello. Write a hamburger book. Right? Easily I could write a a hamburger book. Yes. I've been into sliders (laughs) lately, too. Those have been amazing. Well, folks, if you have some other uh, suggestions or great ideas for fun hamburger toppings in honor of this oh-so-important holiday, National Burger Day, shoot us an email and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at radio at southernsistershome.com, and we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to the Southern Sisters Radio Program. It is time for some food talk. My favorite segment. Mine's too. Always, right? I could talk about food all day long. I often do, as my children tell me. You know, they have have often observed, and they remind me of this on a regular basis, that the older I get, the more I talk about food. And I remember my grandmother used to do that. She talked about food all the time. Mine's as well. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not making any apologies. I love talking about food. And folks, today we are talking about one of my all-time favorite things. It probably is yours, too. Um, The art of the vinaigrette. And I have to tell you, this may be overstating it just a bit, maybe even a little melodramatic, but I have to say, (laughs) vinaigrette, I think, gives my life meaning. (laughs) It gives my culinary life meaning, for sure. Okay, And I have to tell you, my my little uh, bout right now with clean eating, I'm trying to eat a little more healthily. Um, probably would not be as delightful as it is um, if I did not have wonderful vinaigrettes to season up and spice up and marinate my food in. Because I'm kind of working on a more of a plant-based diet now and mm-hmm. adding all good lean meats and proteins and things like that. And, you know, with the, with the leafy greens, I can toss them in these wonderful vinaigrettes. With the meats, I can marinate them in these wonderful vinaigrettes. Mm-hmm. I can drizzle these vinaigrettes over the cooked, you know, fresh grilled fish or the pan-seared pork. Such a universal food tool. I know. <laughs> my mouth is watering now. I'm having <laughs> trouble talking. You know what I'm going to do, though? I'm going to quote myself. Oh. <laughs> yes. This is what I said in my very first cookbook called Sunday in the South, folks. This is what I said about vinaigrette. You ready, Marky? I'm ready. How I love a great vinaigrette. The melding of two distinctly unique partners, oil and vinegar, lends proof to the adage that opposites attract. 
The addition of herbs, sugar, salt, spices, or citrus juice can transform the simple dressing into a culinary masterpiece. Perfect for dribbling, dribbling, (laughs) perfect for drizzling on fresh greens or marinating fish and poultry. Nothing has changed, Marquis. Nothing has changed in the five years since my first book came out. It'll never change. No, no, it's wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about vinaigrette, how it's so wonderful, how we can prepare it, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Just kind of go through a kind of an overview of what the art of the vinaigrette means and how we construct it, all right? Think of it this way, folks. The oil, okay? Oftentimes, my preference is a good quality extra virgin olive oil. There are many kinds out there, you know what I'm saying? Uh, But the oil, for the most part, is the soul of your dressing, all right? Now, most vegetable oils make a fine vinaigrette. Canola, sapphire, and soybean oil are light in flavor, right? While olive oil is going to be deeper and a little more complex. You can even experiment with walnut, sesame, and avocado oil. They are all darker and even more intense, all right? So if you think of the oil as the soul of your vinaigrette, then vinegar, that's the heart of your vinaigrette. You like my uh, I like my literary uh, license I'm taking here with this? <laughs> uh, so white wine vinegar is reliably mild and versatile. I have to tell you, I do use it a good bit. Um, sherry, raspberry, and cider vinegars, they produce more full-flavored vinaigrettes, mm-hmm. right? Um, the dark, sweet flavor of balsamic vinegar is, in a word, sublime. Yes. Right? Now, in the summertime, do you know what I've really been hooked on, though, Marquis? Are the, well, the white balsamic vinegar. Mm. And I first tried white balsamic vinegar because I was just getting a little tired of the way the dark balsamic was, you know, turning my greens brown, which Mm -hmm. is not a problem, but I got tired of it. I thought, I want something a little bit lighter. And I am absolutely in love with white balsamic vinegar right now. (laughs) I have a lot, and folks, you probably can find one near your home, wherever you're living in the South. I know I have found them in many towns across the South, are these wonderful olive oil and vinegar stores. Yes. You know, they are dedicated to doing one thing and doing it well. They do it very well. Don't they? Mm -hmm. And they're so much fun. You go in these places, they'll let you taste the different flavors. I mean, I will stand there just in ecstasy trying, you know, dark cherry balsamic vinegar. Or one I picked up this week was an apricot um, Mm. vinegar. Um, my, My new favorite right now that I've been using almost every day, I have a honey and ginger white balsamic vinegar what hello what oh, oh yes i mean it is absolutely amazing i've used it on salads i've drizzled it over fish just um, did just you, wonderful did you mention white distilled vinegar i have not mentioned that you see it's funny because i've actually used that as a vinaigrette base as well have you and you know white distilled you know it's just yeah, regular vinegar it's regular vinegar and it just has it it people, does. People over, you know, look regular, just normal tasting stuff. Absolutely. And you know what? It gets that nice balance. It's that sort of acidic, mm-hmm. bright flavor. Yep. You know, especially if you like yours a little more tart, a little more vinegary like I do. Now, citrus juice also makes a fabulous addition to your vinaigrette. Okay. Now, due to its high acid content, it can easily replace part or all, quite frankly, of your vinegar in your recipe. So lemon and lime juice are work really well. I use those the most. They'll kind of kick up the flavor. Now, orange juice would provide a little bit more sweetness if you mm-hmm. ever want to try that. All right. Now, be sure also, folks, to give your vinaigrette a good sprinkling of salt and pepper. You know, even if you have no additional seasonings in your dressing, salt and pepper are going to be essential. They're going to enhance the flavor of your ingredients. Right. And then think about herbs also. Now, the choices of herbs and seasonings for your vinaigrette are really endless. I like to follow the seasons, what's fresh right now, what I can find either cheaply in the grocery store or grow in my garden. Now, fresh chopped basil is always a winner. Oregano, thyme, 
the parsley. These are all great choices. Now, each herb is going to lend its own sort of unique flavor, and it's going to sort of pleasantly alter, right, the character of your dressing. You know, you could make it different every time. You know, a lot of people work from recipes. On vinaigrettes, I don't. To me, yeah. that's like my playground. I get in there with, I buy those little mason jars, mm-hmm. the, the pint-sized mason jars at the grocery store. So I have 12 of them on my kitchen counter <laughs> right now. And I just use those to co- sort of construct my dressing. I can seal it up tight, shake it really good. And I have at least two in my refrigerator right now of just concoctions that I've made up based on these oil, vinegar, you know, herb uh, concoctions, basically. They might not be there later on this afternoon. No. I'm going to sneak to your house and take them. You are going to. I am. I should bring you some. <laughs> See, a good radio host would bring her producer a really yummy <laughs> bottle of vinaigrette. <laughs> You're going to guilt me now. Now, dried herbs you can use also. They pair well with vinaigrettes. They're highly concentrated, right? So you won't need to use as much, only about a third as much as you would if they were fresh. Garlic, mustard, and a little sugar are also great additions to your vinaigrette. Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, Marky, are you asking yourself? I'm asking myself. What is the perfect oil to vinegar ratio? What is the perfect oil to vinegar ratio? Well, guess what? I have the answer. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> the answer is whatever you like. Oh, honestly. Wow. <laughs> now, now, traditionally, traditionally, a three to one ratio of oil to vinegar that will produce a classic smooth vinaigrette. A two to one ratio, okay, so a little bit more vinegar, less oil, will uh, yield a a vinaigrette that is a little thinner and a little bit more tart, Mm. okay? When I'm kind of, you know, maybe watching what I'm eating, trying to be a little healthier, um, I'll do more like a one-to-one ratio. Now, that's going to be a thinner thinner salad dressing or a thinner vinaigrette, Mm. but um, I absolutely love it, okay? And you can experiment with these proportions until you find the consistency that you like. Now, you may know, as, as, as is true in love and life and vinaigrettes, Oil and vinegar do not really want to combine with one another, okay? It's sort of a classic love-hate relationship. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So temporary emulsion is the term that's used to describe what, what, what occurs when you vigorously shake to combine oil and vinegar, right? You need an airtight job, you know, jar for this because yes. you're going to be shaking the heck out of this thing, mm-hmm. right? Temporary emulsion. And you, we all know that if we haven't poured the salad dressing out by the time it separates, you're going to have to shake it up again, yep. right? Now, homemade vinaigrette can be stored, folks, in the refrigerator for three to four weeks. You can use it to dress up your fresh greens, your vegetable salads, or marinate your meat or fish or poultry. And, you know, try sampling new oils, vinegars, and the limitless array of herbs and seasonings to create your own signature vinaigrette. How about a recipe? Are you you ready for one? Oh, this is a good one. I made this this week. I'm going to make it again next week because it was so yummy. Folks, we're talking today about a wonderful maple balsamic pork tenderloin salad. Mm. Oh, yes. You want to start out with a pork tenderloin. You know, there are two of them in a package. So take two of them, right? You're going to brush the pork with a little EVOO, extra virgin olive oil, (laughs) salt and pepper. Okay. I want you to pan sear those in a cast iron skillet on top of your uh, stove. Sear them on both sides or all four sides if you have the patience to turn them. Right. Now, you do not have to cook them completely in the pan. You can. Um, You can finish them off in the oven. Pop them in a 350 oven until they're nice and done. The juices run clear. Set your pork aside. Okay. Once it's cooled a little bit, I want you to slice it nice and thin and on the diagonal. Okay. Now, um, what we're going to do, though, first, let me back up a little bit here. I skipped the part about the marinade. Oh, so we're marinade. Gonna, oh yes. Let's pick it in reverse here. Now, here's what you're going to do. Here's the fun, the maple balsamic salad. You're going to need about a third of a cup of balsamic vinegar, a third of a cup of maple syrup. You're going to combine those, folks, okay? You can either whisk them in a, in a blender or blend them in a blender. You can whisk them in a bowl with a whisk. Uh, and then gradually, you're going to add one third of a cup of olive oil, that is your marinade. So what you're going to do is pour two-thirds cup of dressing 
into a large resealable plastic bag and you're going to add the pork. You're going to seal the bag, kind of turn it over a little bit so it coats, and you want to refrigerate that for at least 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. okay? Then we're going to move on to the part where we're going to brush a little olive oil and salt and pepper and pan sear it. Now, that remaining balsamic vinegar, uh, the vinaigrette that we've prepared, that's what's going to dress your greens. You're going to need about eight cups of mixed salad greens. I'm kind of hooked on arugula lately. Mm. I've been loving that. And you're going to need about two pounds of fresh strawberries, right? Cut the stems off and slice them up. stop. Put the greens and the strawberries together. Mm -hmm. Drizzle that remaining one-third of your maple balsamic of vinaigrette over that toss it good right and then i like to go ahead and make the plate plate everything i like to put big handfuls of those greens and the strawberries on the plate you're going to take that beautiful pork tenderloin that you have sliced horizontally and lay that right across the top if you really want to be wild i'd sprinkle a little crumbled blue cheese on top Uh, and call it a day hello summer yes hello vinaigrette Hello, autumn. I want to go home. Right. Hello, spring. Hello, winter. You know what? You can replace (laughs) apples with these strawberries. Do some chopped apple. Be a fabulous fall dish. So, folks, there you have it. The art of the vinaigrette. All of this information will be on our website. Go in and check it out. Go ahead and visit southernsistershome.com and click on the blog. And we'll be right back. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Southern Sisters Radio Show. Oh, we're talking food. Let's just keep talking food, Marky. I love it. Mm-mm-mm. You know, on the subject of food, though, it's interesting to think about just regionally how our culinary tastes vary, depending on what part of the country we live in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is uh, probably a lot of Southerners that would tell you that there are certain foods that only Southerners eat. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm going to qualify this by saying it's not that these foods are not ever consumed in other parts of the country. It's just that Southerners do it with, um, well, you know, particular gusto. Yes. You know what I'm saying? We do it better. Yes. Okay. That's a bold bold statement. But there are certain dishes, just as all areas of the country have their sort of regional cuisine, there are some of the things that we eat here in the South are just quintessentially Southern. And I think Northerners recognize that about us. Yeah, they do. You know what I'm saying? So I think it'd be kind of fun to kind of recap, um, let's kind of go through and list some of the types of foods that we consume here in the South that are unique to us and that we do ever so well. Let's see what you got. Okay. You have to tell me what you think. What do you think about fried pickles? Love them. Oh, right. Did you know they originated in Arkansas in about 1962? There was a man named Burnell Fatman Austin, Fatman being his nickname, <laughs> and he owned a place called the Duchess Drive-In, and he was apparently the first one to bread and fry dill pickles. How Probably was that? an accident. Probably was an accident. Probably. But they're so good. <laughs> That's how so many things happen, mm-hmm. right? Remember how we talked about the root beer floats a couple yep. of weeks ago? Yep. You know what I'm saying? And and who you know, and think of it, who was the first person that thought of, let's put a pimento into some chopped cheese? Exactly. You know, how does this <laughs> stuff come about? But, you know, I, well, I will attest to the fact that some of my mishaps in the kitchen um, have not all been disasters. It, meaning, in the end, maybe something kind of yummy and wonderful came out of it. And then you never remember how you did it. You know, you, I got to start writing things down. <laughs> I got to. You know, my mother had her handy, trusty recipe file on her counter it, it, ever since I could remember as I was growing up. I, I can't even tell you where my recipe file is. <laughs> I'm just I'm just a rebel. 
I'm, I'm just a I'm a rogue. Just cook. a rogue. Cook. I'm a rogue cook. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yes, yeah, so the fried pickles and I, and everybody does them, right? Yep. I mean, most of the restaurants these days do them. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw them at Zaxby's. I saw them on the menu at Zaxby's. Yeah, right, at Zaxby's. So, yeah, you know. So, but anyway, so yes, fried pickles, folks. You're not going to find that, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska, shall we say? Yeah, probably not. You may or may not. How about barbecue? Yes, barbecue okay. and cooking out are different. Yes, now we have we we talked about mm-hmm. that. We did a whole show on that, we right? Did. During barbecue month earlier, last earlier in the summertime. Now, so I want to be very very specific about this. We are not talking, folks, about cooking out on a grill barbecue, like barbecuing as a verb. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about southern barbecue, meaning pork, meaning slow roasted over a pit, mm-hmm. meaning smothered in barbecue sauce. Whatever kind you prefer, the sweet stuff or the vinegary, right? Meaning the kind that you take your white bread and dip it in the sauce. Good old-fashioned Southern barbecue. From the soul. From the soul. Absolutely. So anyway, that's another food here in the South that I think is pretty much typically. I just don't, you, I don't know exactly what they're serving up North in terms of what they call barbecued pork or that kind of thing. But it's just, it's not going to be like what we have down here. Often imitated. Often imitated, yeah. Sometimes not so well. <laughs> not, uh, <yes. laughs> not to mention all of the wonderful sides. See, the barbecue is more like an experience. Mm-hmm. It's not one item, is it really? I mean, no. it is, but it's it, it, it comes along with all the wonder. Think of it, the coleslaw, the baked beans, right? Sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes, mac and cheese, okay? Texas toast. Collard greens. Oh, man, is it lunchtime? <laughs> I think so. Is it lunchtime? <laughs> I got to eat. Now, how about this? How about um, another item from the South here? Country ham. Yes, I love country ham. Why are you bringing this stuff up and I'm hungry oh, already? Oh, are you hungry right now? Yes. Okay, now I'm saying country ham, but let me let me continue by saying country ham versus city ham, and it's different. Okay. <laughs> well, please explain. <laughs> I will I will do some explaining. So, folks, yes, here in the South, we love our country ham, and I think in the North, it tends to be more towards what they call city ham. Now, you may be asking yourself, what on earth is the real difference? Well, of course, city ham, all right, that's going to be a wet-cured ham. Or one, let's say, that's injected with a brine. Typically, the brine is salt and sugar and seasonings, right? So your city ham is going to be more moist. It's going to have a mild sort of juicy flavor, okay? We've all had city ham. Mm-hmm. But then you have to, just have to ask yourself, you know, what, what is country ham then? And why is that so quintessentially southern? Well, it was really a matter of necessity for storing ham, okay? So in the country with the country ham, that's going to be dry cured, Right. This is how our, our, you know, our southern ancestors used to prepare it. It would be rubbed with salt and seasonings. It would be be smoked. Mm. You know, so our southern ancestors would have hung it in the smokehouse, right? And then it would have been aged for anywhere from, let's say, four months to even as much as three years. <sighs> how about that? Eating a three-year-old ham. Now, its characteristics, as we all know, are salty, a little more chewy, and intensely flavorful. Yes. A country ham, is there anything better than a country ham biscuit? No. You know, a hot buttermilk biscuit? No. You tear it open, you lay a couple of nice slices of country ham on there. See, I'd even put a little dollop of something like peach preserves on there too. But, you know, not everybody likes that. (laughs) But I'm weird. (laughs) Okay, so we've got fried pickles, barbecue, country ham. What about red beans and rice? Now, 
Well, I say that's probably to one region of the South. It, it is towards one region of the South. But hey, are you are you saying are you saying Louisiana is not part of the South? It's part of the South. Them's fighting words there, Marquis. Hey, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. You are absolutely right. It is an emblematic dish of Louisiana Creole cuisine, right? Do you know a little bit about the history of red beans and rice, though? Do you know that they were traditionally served in the South on Mondays? Now, why Mondays, you might say? Why Mondays? Well, typically because, you know, the red beans and rice were made, the red beans were cooked and soaked and simmered for many, many hours with the leftover ham bone from Sunday's dinner. Oh, oh, okay, so it makes sense. Also, I did a little further delving into this because I was, you know, I'm fascinated with food history. Um, But apparently also Mondays were often wash days. So it was a very convenient day to put those beans on in the morning and let them soak throughout the day. They had the time, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of those dishes they could kind of put it on in the morning, let, let the beans soak, you know, and then let things simmer for a while while they were taking care of the wash. So, yes, folks, red beans and rice, it's red beans. Uh, usually bell pepper, onions, celery, spices, especially a little cayenne. I like a little cayenne. Everything delicious. Right? <laughs> and then just slow cooked with that ham bone all day long and then served over rice. Hello. Oh, so good. Red beans and rice. Love it. Not going to find that in uh, Seattle, Washington. Oh, yeah. Well, you might. Or Maine. It wouldn't taste as good up there. Lobster and rice, maybe in Maine. Lobster and rice. <laughs> <laughs> How about this one? How about some tomato pie? We've spoken a little bit about... The very first recipe was tomato pie. We did. Our very first show we did. We talked all about tomatoes, and the tomato pie was sort of the uh, the crowning glory of mm-hmm. our of our tomato pie, or tomato uh, episode that we did. But, you know, I, I've had, I was making my notes for the show. I drew a little heart. Look, Marquise, <laughs> there's a little heart yeah, right the heart. there next to my little my tomato pie. It just makes me happy. Mm-hmm. It's just the, you know... And I kind of have my own little twist on it. I don't like big slabs of tomato in my tomato pie, uh, so I, I chop the tomatoes that go into my tomato mm. pie. That way, every little piece is just the right little bite. You might bite upset some old grandmas out there I now. know. I'm always upsetting grandmas, <laughs> saying things I shouldn't say. But you know, <laughs> but you know, it's just, you know, you put in that pie crust with that mayo and that cheese and the fresh basil. So good. Hello. Baking it in the oven. It's just like, it, it tastes like summer to me. Now, what's, whoever combined basil and tomatoes, genius. Genius. Oh, who is that? I don't know. So you, would, you wouldn't know if I told you who, you wouldn't know if it was right or wrong. No. Yeah, that, that, uh, that, yeah, that was me. Oh, that, wow. That was me that came up with that, Marquis. That's so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am a tomato and basil fan, though. Probably its biggest fan. How about grits? Oh. Okay. Just had this debate yesterday with someone here at the station. Mm, Love right? grits. Love grits. You know, now properly known as maybe hominy grits, you could call it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, with grits, the corn is soaked and the shell or the bran is removed. The, the, the uh, They're then dried and then the grits are, or the corn is ground up. Now, you know, Northerners have their little version. Yeah. You know what they call it? Polenta. Yeah, whatever. Right, yeah, polenta. Okay, from originally from Italy. Now, that's going to be more granular in texture. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like to say it's like um, if you're going to the, the Grits family reunion, polenta is kind of like the, um, you know, the, the illegitimate stepchild. <laughs> hey, y'all. <laughs> and Polenta's like, hello, everyone. How are you doing today? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I hope I, I don't want to offend any, any Polenta fans out it. there. But it's, oh, you do. <laughs> All marquee. Blame it on him. But no, folks, grits, absolutely a, a quintessential part of life in the South. You know, I made a dish this week for my husband, and it was one that I had seen online and I'd wanted to try it for quite some time. I'm always experimenting, and then I'll put my own little twist on it. 
but it's a shakshuka. I think it's how you pronounce it. And please forgive me if I am slaughtering the pronunciation, but it's an Israeli dish Mm. made with tomatoes and onion. And uh, it is absolutely to die for. And you simmer these roasted onions in this wonderful tomato sauce on the stovetop. And then you crack uh, in my dish, you crack four eggs right on top of the simmering tomato sauce Mm. and the eggs poach in in the tomato sauce. And uh, I served this over some, what did I serve it over this week? Something I can't even remember now. Oh, I did some uh, Italian sausage. I pan seared some Italian sausage and just, we spooned this over the top. But you know what? Being the Southern girl that I am, you know what I did? You know what I was thinking the whole time I was eating this wonderful Israeli dish? I should have this over some grits. I should have this over (laughs) some grits. Great minds think alike, Marquis. It was this wonderful, simmery, peppery, you know, with these wonderful eggs that had poached in the center of the sauce. And I thought, oh, Lordy, just spoon that over some cheese grits and call it a day. Sounds so good. Oh, love living in the South, folks. So there you have it. Some wonderful foods that we Southerners certainly know how to eat. Special shout out to Chitlins. Chitlins. Chitlins, (laughs) Marquis. We'll have to have a whole segment on that next week. (laughs) And we'll be right back. Get with the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Welcome back to the Southern Sisters Radio Show. Now, with your Southern narrative, sharing stories from around the South, here is your host, Jenny McCormick Earhart. The World's Largest Seersucker Party by Anna McCollum. What happens when you give Southerners a good excuse to drink bourbon and sport their finest seersucker? At last year's Seriously Seersucker, a Franklin, Tennessee party organized to benefit the town's College of Design, host Robert Hicks found the answer. They'll appear in droves. So the New York Times best-selling author of The Widow of the South is doing it again this year on August 27th. Hicks will host the second annual Seriously Seersucker party on the campus of its beneficiary, O'Moore College of Design. A ticket and a puckered pastel cotton garment will score you a signature cocktail, a spin on an old-fashioned with fresh peach nectar, southern-style dinner catered by Franklin's Cool Cafe, and a chance to win such silent auction items as a custom-made suit by New Orleans' seersucker suit pioneer, Haspel. Also on the party docket, Motown's tunes from Atlanta's Jimmy Church Band and just a heck of a lot of fun, Hicks says. Hicks is a staunch Franklin preservationist. He's also long been an advocate for O'More, whose 19th century Italianate style administration building is listed on the National Historic Registry. Until last year, though, the school had no scholarship fund for its 200 students. The idea for a fundraiser came to Hicks last June 9th, National Seersucker Day, and a Facebook poll confirmed his hunch that the theme would hold appeal. He pulled off the first gathering in just six weeks, and more than 300 guests arrived wearing the Southern staple. Says Hicks, Because O'More is a design school, some of the seersucker dresses last year were designed by students. That will happen again this year. But the real plus is that I believe we can make claim to being the largest seersucker gathering on the planet. And just under the wire, too, since come September, it'll be time to hang up that suit until next spring. no longer needed in contemporary life by Mary Burge. 
My father was the unofficial historian of the extended Burge clan, which has inhabited southern Mississippi for over 200 years. He held this title perhaps because he was a congenially accepted know-it-all. In 1958, at the age of 14, he won the state high school Latin competition. He attended Old Miss for one year on a Latin scholarship before transferring to Mississippi State to study engineering. He had nearly perfect standardized test scores. I, however, became an artist. In 1973, he took it upon himself to utilize a relatively new technology called compact taped cassettes to record my grandfather and great aunts and great uncles telling stories about their lives in the small hamlet of Henleyfield, Mississippi, a place where the roads were finally named in the 1990s after the oldest living resident on the street. My father stored the tapes in a metal saltine can in the back of his office closet for over 30 years before I dug them out and digitized them. I sampled one of the recordings of Great Uncle Luther for an installation I did in graduate school at the Rhode Island School of Design. The only people who could understand what he was saying were from Little Rock, Arkansas, and Austin, Texas, respectfully. The mother of the girl from Austin was from my hometown in Mississippi. When I first heard the recordings from the 1970s, I was startled by how beautiful and foreign the accents were to me. I heard the Faulknerian lexicon, it and weren't, come alive. When I mentioned this to my father, he lamented it was television that caused people to talk like the man on the 5 o'clock news. At the time, my father made his tape recordings. They had experienced television for about a decade, and there was only one channel, WDSU, out of New Orleans. My father, unlike his agrarian parents, went to college and has a mellowed, classic Southern drawl. My diction, although steadfastly peppered with eccentric idioms, is delivered more or less in the bastardized tones of standard American. I feel like I am the last in a long line of Southern accents. I have lived in Yankee land for almost half my life now, from New York City to New England to my current home in Los Angeles, California. If I get tired or drink bourbon, I am told my accent becomes, well, comes back slightly. I feel like losing my accent is akin to hearing damage. There are special tonal ranges that once lost are lost forever. Now when people ask me to speak like I am from Mississippi, I fear I sound like a bad Hollywood actor, or worse, like one of those people who compliment me for not having a southern accent. I have sadly concluded that it's better to speak like a false Yankee than a fake southerner. The best kinds of Southern accents infer in their very construction that whimsy, beauty, and grace are possible in a world otherwise tragically dull. Although I view losing my accent as a form of adaptation, it also feels like I am letting go of a distinct reserve of creativity. The beautiful turns of phrase I grew up with, like, that boy is as dumb as a bag of hammers, or the devil is beating his wife, are inappropriate in the literal world of the non-South. Frankly, they are just not practical. They are slower, less efficient, too idiosyncratic, and perceived to bear the mark of ignorance. My current accent tells no story 
because it is not meant to tell one. I am supposed to disappear behind the word American. I wonder, though, if you cannot appreciate the accent, how can you appreciate the story? I have often asked myself, why did an engineer decide to record stories about faith healing, fiddle playing, and slaughtering hogs? He has an analytical mind, he's a southerner, and southerners love storytellers. The South was built on sordid histories and their anecdotal reinterpretations. When I was four years old, I remember my father telling me bedtime stories. They were not your typical fairy tales, but rather recollections from his own childhood presented as a macabre mixture of fact and fiction. His neighbor, who purposely hoed all the grass out of her yard and boiled her laundry in a big black cauldron, became a voodoo practitioner. Another neighbor set the woods on fire one cold winter night because he hid his good whiskey, the bonded bottles smuggled from Louisiana in tree stumps at the back of his property. He didn't trust his wife's friends not to steal it when they came over for a prayer meeting of their holy roller group called the Sanctified Saints. When the control burned happened that year, the flames got too close to his secret stash. My favorite stories were the out-and-out scary ones, though. A man passing through the country to visit a distant relative got permission from a yeoman to sleep in his old barn. He was awoken in the night by the unnerving sound of his horse screaming. As he rushed out to investigate, several pairs of glowing yellow eyes greeted him in the seamless black night. Now this is the point in the story when my father screeches like a pack of hungry coyotes causing me to yelp and grab his arm. In the morning, all the farmer's hound dogs can find is a lot of blood and the bridle of the horse. Whether it was healthy or not, four-year-old me loved these unique, frightful stories straight out of the backwoods of Mississippi. I came to believe over time that when you hear a disturbing, fantastic story from the South, there is a 50-50 chance of it being true. For the past decade or so, I have similarly made field recordings of my older relatives telling stories. I have also taken photographs and video. In effect, I have a collection of three, possibly four generations of regional accents. They differ noticeably. I never intended to use the South in my art practice. I found out in graduate school how alien my formative experiences are to people within my own country. I started a video art series entitled Skills No Longer Needed in Contemporary Life. The first video was about how to fire a single barrel shotgun, and the second video was about how to kill a chicken. While the videos seem like a didactic father-daughter lessons, there is an implied commentary on media and cultural loss. In the absence of necessity or culture, certain actions can be reduced to mere performances. I do not think you can really learn survival skills by proxy, nor can you interchangeably use the words knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge differs from wisdom because there is an implied cultural lesson involved. Stories differ from documentation because there is an understood importance given to the storyteller. To convert to a purely documented or data-driven view of history precludes the need for a storyteller. Really? 
the skill no longer needed in contemporary life is that of the oral historian or the storyteller. Objectively speaking, a machine can preserve the past in a more enduring way. But as data piles up, who makes the decision on what to keep and what to throw away? Is there a difference between quality and quantity? Is there a virtue in the human ability to forget? And does it matter whether or not sounds of the words give you pleasure? You can rest everybody, but cruel Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us this week for the Southern Sisters radio program. It was such a delight here to be with you. What a great thing it is to live in the South, to hear Southern stories, to eat Southern food, to have Southern experiences. You know, we covered a lot of ground today. Certainly all of our wonderful vinaigrette recipes and all of that discussion. All of that, folks, will be on our website. Please go visit us, southernsistershome.com. Click on the blog and you'll see all of the uh, wonderful vinaigrette recipes, plus quite a few more that we didn't have time to get to today. Anyway, folks, have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. 